The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast, where we're connecting with Anchorage's soul through her history, stories, and people. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. In Season 1, Episode 13 of this podcast, we looked a little bit at the illegal alcohol trade during Anchorage's early days. On this episode, we'll turn our attention to two different historical stories about mind-altering substances. One, the legal sale of beer, and the other, Alaska's long history of semi-legal and legal marijuana. For both stories, we'll go back to the 1970s. On December 11, 1972, an Anchorage attorney named Irwin Raven was pulled over for a broken taillight on his car. The officer wrote Raven a ticket, but he purposefully refused to sign it, all the while holding a small amount of marijuana in his hand. He was subsequently arrested. Raven fought the arrest in court over the next few years, and as a result, In May of 1975, the Alaska Supreme Court ruled in favor of Raven just a little over a week after the state legislature voted to decriminalize marijuana. According to the Anchorage Daily News, the new law stated that if a person was arrested with one ounce of marijuana or less in public or in possession of any amount in the privacy of one's home, he or she could not be fined more than $100. The Supreme Court deemed possession of marijuana in one's home as protected by the Constitution. Never mind that Raven was arrested with pot in his car. In 1982, the state legislature dropped the $100 fine, making marijuana all but legal in the last frontier. But that didn't last for long. Seven years later, in 1989, citizens seeking to end marijuana use in the state began circulating a petition. The Daily News reported that, in November of 1990, the voter initiative passed, making it illegal to even have or smoke pot in one's home. If caught with less than 8 ounces, a person could spend 90 days in a jail cell and get slapped with a $1,000 fine. In the span of 17 years, pot had gone from illegal, to decriminalized with a small fine, to decriminalized with no fine, to illegal with a fine and 90 days in jail. Following the recriminalization of marijuana, a few notable busts took place. According to the Anchorage Daily News, in 1995, Three Point Mackenzie men were arrested and charged with poaching a dozen moose over the course of six months. One of the men was also charged with setting up illegal bear baiting stations in the woods across Kinnick Arm from Anchorage. Troopers said they believed the men intended, in one of the most Alaskan things ever, to trade bear parts to undercover investigators in exchange for marijuana. 
The next year, in 1996, Trooper seized 1,465 plants, worth more than $700,000, in a shed next to Doug and Heather Gregg's home. Trooper Al Story said the bust was the largest in recent history. In October of 1998, Anchorage police confiscated 1,097 plants during a bust on Birchwood Loop Road, the largest pot bust in Anchorage at the time. And also that month, troopers found what they said was the most impressive growing and packaging operation they had ever seen in four secret rooms beneath the garage of an Anchorage hillside home. Troopers seized 181 plants and indicted seven people. Clearly, recriminalization had not stopped the consumption of marijuana. Also in 1998, Alaska residents voted nearly 70% in favor of legalizing marijuana for medical use. Under that law, according to the Daily News, those smoking for their own health and registered in the state database could possess an ounce or up to six plants, of which only three could be budding. Starting in 2000, a push to legalize marijuana grew in the state and residents voted on initiatives calling for legislation in 2000 and 2004. Both of those votes failed to legalize marijuana. In 2006, then-Governor Frank Murkowski strengthened the illegal status of marijuana and made the possession of one to four ounces of pot a misdemeanor crime with a penalty of up to one year in jail. The change was challenged in court by the American Civil Liberties Union. According to the Anchorage Daily News, in 2008, Alaska's Supreme Court began hearing testimony for the state v. ACLU, but... Plot twist, no decision was made. Privacy rights were to be re-examined when a defendant would actually be prosecuted for a marijuana offense. In 2013, citizens once again sought to re-legalize marijuana. The campaign to regulate marijuana was looking for signatures to legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana in Alaska. By January 2014, they had 45,000 signatures in hand. On November 4, 2014, the Anchorage Dispatch News reported, after years of debate and decades of semi-legal status, Alaskans will finally be able to light up legally. On Tuesday, voters approved Ballot Measure 2, an initiative legalizing recreational marijuana in Alaska, by about 52% in favor and 48% opposed. With the vote, Alaska joins Washington, Colorado, and Oregon as the first states in the country to legalize pot. In the nearly decade since that ruling, marijuana dispensaries have sprung up across Anchorage and Alaska. And there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world over Looking around Anchorage today, it might be hard to believe that there was a time that there were no local breweries in the city or the state. However, it really isn't all that far in the past. When the oil boom of the 1970s started, no beer was being brewed in Alaska, but a plan was soon in place to fix that. According to a local PBS TV broadcast of the show Alaska Review, titled Great Land, Great Beer, Great Problems from 1977, one Anchorage man had a dream of brewing beer in the last frontier. P. 
Peter Bading, a German immigrant from Anchorage, retired from the fur trade in 1964 to pursue bringing a brewery to Alaska. Initially, despite an agreement with a large brewing company in Germany, it was decided that it was not feasible to build a brewery in Alaska because of the high taxes on alcohol in the state. Bading sought and eventually received a reprieve from state liquor taxes. In 1969, that reprieve was granted under an act designed to encourage industrial development within the state. The state was excited to support the development of agriculture and jobs in Alaska. The tax reprieve was set to last seven years, but could be as much as 10 years if the brewery worked with the University of Alaska on developing the raw materials needed for brewing. At the time, three companies, all being run from Seattle, held a tight grip on the sale and distribution of alcohol in Alaska. In the early 70s, two of those companies were indicted, convicted, and fined for price-fixing in the state. Nearly as soon as the tax reprieve was granted, a group made up of those with standing interests in the sale of alcohol in Alaska, who also testified against the tax reprieve, took baiting, his German partners, and the state of Alaska to court. The case went all the way to the state Supreme Court, where the state, Bading, and his partners prevailed. Bading's desire to create an Alaskan-brewed beer coincided with the oil pipeline boom and a design to use the state's newfound wealth to create sustainable economic development. Then-Governor Bill Hammond, the architect of the Alaska Permanent Fund, was keen to support the emerging agricultural industry in interior Alaska. In his book, Alaska Beer, Liquid Gold in the Land of the Midnight Sun, Bill Howell explains that, A report issued at Hammond's request by the University of Alaska agriculture professors supported the feasibility of the concept, allowing the governor to proclaim, It is in fact possible that Alaska will be a prime agricultural state in the not-too-distant future. To capitalize on that report, and the enthusiasm it created in Hammond and others, as well as the forecasted bumper crop of barley that was coming, the state sold off 70,000 acres of land for growing barley in the Delta Junction area. The state also built an $8.5 million grain terminal in Seward. Bill Howell shares that Valdez, the town with the deep water port and the terminus of the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline, was envious. So it built an even bigger and better grain terminal that ended up costing the city upwards of $30 million. All this talk and planning for Alaska-grown barley made brewing beer in the state look very attractive. Add to that the fact that beer consumption was up 16.2% in Alaska after the announcement of the pipeline, and reportedly beer sales had jumped 51% in Fairbanks alone. Bader's partners, the Radeberger Group from West Germany, began plans to open a small brewery in Alaska, with production being done in Anchorage at a plant in the Huffman Business Park. Howell writes, The brewery represented an $11.7 million dollar $48.52 million in 2014 money, investment that employed 40 locals brewing lager beers made in accordance with the German purity law. Two beers were eventually produced, Prince Brau and Prince Extra, and they were packaged in both bottles and cans. The brewery started production in 1976 with a huge amount of optimism. The general manager of the brewery, Gerard Kaninsky, was quoted as saying that when assessing the future, he saw no clouds. Brewmaster Heinrich Reich explained on the episode of Alaska Review that the first Prince Brow that was brewed was in the German style and that it was adapted to fit a more American profile. Of the product, he stated, I believe the product which we now have on the market is absolutely excellent. 
At first, the company's enthusiasm was matched by the public as residents of Anchorage and Fairbanks flocked to stores to try the new beer. Prince Brow sales started off strong. Chilkoot Charlie's was the first to put the beer on draft and continued to be its biggest draft customer. The optimism, however, faded fast. Craig Medred, writing in the Anchorage Daily News in 2011, recalled, The first beer it produced was mediocre. Though it soon got better, there was a big problem, brand loyalty. Most of those pipeline workers who had been drinking some other brew somewhere else, they wanted to drink it in Alaska, too. There was also another problem. In response to a dispute between managers of the brewery and the leader of the Teamsters, Teamsters Local 959 sent a letter to every establishment selling and serving Prince Brow. The letter stated that the Teamsters would set up informational picket lines in front of any place selling the beer, alerting buyers not to purchase Prince Brow, because it was being made by non-union workers. The Teamsters were clear that they were not asking bars and stores not to carry Prince Brow, but rather for customers to boycott the product. In response, some chain stores, including Oak and Keg, canceled their orders for the Alaskan-made beer, while others continued to carry the product and reported good sales. In part because of the letter, the brewery projected its losses in 1977 to be $1.5 million. But believe it or not, there were more problems, starting with the fact that the first crop of barley in the Delta Junction region didn't go into the ground until 1978. Howell writes, it also turned out the strain of barley used didn't grow particularly well in Alaska due to short summers. This was also followed by a series of events right out of the Old Testament. A drought, a grasshopper infestation, and finally roaming bison stomping through the field. In addition to the failure to source cheap barley in-state was a battle for market share with out-of-state breweries, including a sponsorship of the Iditarod by Olympia Beer in 1984 and ads for beers like Rainier directed at Alaskans. As a newcomer, Prince Brow had no brand loyalty to help them get a foothold in the market. There was also a bit of a backlash against the fact that Prince Brow, while hiring Alaskans at the plant, was owned and managed by Germans. Finally, there was the cans and the contents. Howell reports, the initial consignment of cans they received in Anchorage had a defective lining, allowing iron from the steel bodies to leach into the beer. Iron in beer leads to harsh and unpleasant flavors. What it sent into the market, when it was not contaminated with iron, turned out to be little different from the beers from Olympia, Rainier, and other breweries that were flooding into the state just another bland and inoffensive lager with little to offer in the way of flavor. By the time a Seattle longshoreman's strike cut off the supply of ingredients to Prince Brow in 1979, the brewery was struggling to make it. In the end, the strike proved to be the final blow for Prince Brow, and the brewery closed. I asked Ted and Mary Rosenzweig, the owners of Turnigan Brewing, one of more than a dozen breweries operating in Anchorage, if they or anyone else brews beers today with Alaska-grown barley. I was told that no one does, because the barley produced in the interior is not high enough quality grade for brewing, and that the state lacks a malting facility, a key for using barley for brewing. Turnigan does use unmalted wheat from the Matanuska Valley in its beers. Arctic Harvest, a farm-to-bottle distillery in North Pole, grows its own grain for distilling. Today, you can find cans and other ephemera of Prince Brow in antique shops in Anchorage and in Alaska. I have a glass mug in my cupboard. 
The gold cans featured two polar bears holding a crest bearing the letter P and the slogan, the only one brewed with pure Alaskan water. Occasionally, one hears stories of people finding a long-forgotten, unopened can of Prince Brow. The Teamsters never did picket any stores. season we're considering what is possible. On this episode, we've considered a piece of history around the possibility of a brewing industry in Anchorage and the legalization of marijuana and the industry that that has produced. Both of those industries are thriving in Anchorage, and many residents partake in beer and marijuana in a responsible way. However, there can be a dark side. According to a 2020 report from the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services titled Marijuana Use and Public Health in Alaska, 10% of adults in Alaska use marijuana on 20 or more of the last 30 days, characterized as heavy use in 2017. That translates to about 54,000 adults who are using at levels that might be considered risky. Adult heavy use has increased significantly between 2015 and 2017. The prevalence of marijuana use among Alaska adults is higher than the national average. According to reporting from Alaska Public Media, the rate of deaths due to drinking alcohol nearly doubled over a two-year period between 2019 and 2021 in Alaska, based on data from the Alaska Department of Health. The deaths counted included people who die from alcohol poisoning and those who die from alcohol-related causes like liver disease. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Alaska has one of the highest rates of binge drinking in the country. Join me next time when I will talk to Tiffany Hall about what is possible in the area of substance misuse, addiction, and recovery. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. This episode drew heavily from Bill Howell's excellent book, Alaska Beer, Liquid Gold in the Land of the Midnight Sun, and also drew from the 1977 Alaska Review episode, Great Land, Great Beer, Great Problems. Both of these resources have links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, and recommend us to your friends. Those are small things, but they make a huge difference. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hearts, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean a desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at anchorageutc. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner. <laughs>